Hello and welcome to a special edition of Crikey's Election Cast. It's Wednesday the 27th of April, I'm Cam Wilson. As the podcast's name suggests, usually we are covering each day of the election trail, but today we are speaking to Amber Schultz, Associate Editor of Crikey, about the humanitarian crisis happening in Europe. Amber just spent three weeks reporting from Ukraine's border. Yesterday, she published on crikey.com.au a four-part investigative series about the fight against human trafficking there, with predators and pedophiles hoping to take advantage of vulnerable refugees. We recorded this conversation live just a few minutes ago, so apologies for the audio quality. Here's Amber. Welcome, Amber. Hi. Good to have you here. First of all, what was it like? Across the borders, so... This was my first international assignment um, travelling with Crikey and it was three days travelling across Poland, Romania, Moldova and a couple of times into Ukraine itself, um, really focusing on the human experience of those whose lives have been completely turned upside down by Russia's invasion. Um, and, And what really sort of struck me is obviously this is the biggest refugee crisis we've seen in modern times. It's a tremendous amount of people that have been displaced. Uh, There's, you know, there's 10 million people that have been internally displaced and another 5 million people who have actually fled Ukraine, um, the majority of which, 90% of whom are women and children. So it's, it's a huge, it's a huge mass migration of people, but still what struck me, even taking it this into account was just the sheer chaos of of everything. You know, NGOs are really doing their best and, and local governments are really doing their best to sort of set up processes and support systems for refugees. And there is a tremendous amount of support for them. Uh, but just the amount of disorganisation, the fact that there were so many NGOs each doing something a little bit the same, a little bit different. And of course, so many uh, volunteers from all over the world who didn't actually have any affiliate organisation or any affiliate charity or NGO who just flocked to the borders to help. Uh, And that sort of chaos makes it really, really easy for people with bad intentions or human traffickers to take advantage of the situation. Jeez, uh, that does sound a little bit stressful. Uh, This refugee crisis is different from the last ones, isn't it? Mm, It's it's hugely different for a number of reasons. I mean, firstly, it is, as I mentioned, it's it's 90% women and children. Men of fighting age aren't permitted to leave Ukraine. So the only men that are leaving are uh, either elderly men, um, adolescents, or men that are have you know a, quite a, a profound um, physical disability that means that they're not able to help, or those that are single parents. So it's really restrictive, and it's one of the first crises we've seen where it is, you know, so gendered. Um, uh, there, there are a number of other different things that are, are different. It's also one of the first ones where governments haven't set up long-term accommodation for refugees. Um, a lot of the sort of mentality of both the refugees and of host nations is that the Ukrainians aren't refugees. They're guests. They're just going to stay in mostly the EU for a little while um, until you know the outcome of the war is clear. And obviously most hope that means Russia will will step back. Um, so that's one of the key problems is that there's no uh, semi-permanent facilities for people to stay in. They're all staying with host families or with um, relatives a- across across the world and mostly across the EU. 
So it's it's really different. Another thing that we sort of have to acknowledge is this is the first refugee crisis uh, where we've really seen the entire world step up and refugees be offered so much support. You know, they have two years of working and living rights in the EU, uh, which we've never seen before. So there's something to be said for that. This is the first time refugees have really been welcomed with open arms across the world. You have um, also published some um, incredible pieces and also footage from being on the border and seeing what appears to be or maybe might be human traffickers trying to um, take advantage of the situation. Can you tell us how big the risk is of trafficking on the border and also like what you just personally saw? Mm. So the risk is is huge and it was sort of, it was a very tough series to investigate because if you speak to uh, government officials, if you speak to local police forces, um, they all tell you nothing's happening here, look away. But when I started speaking to aid workers, to the Red Cross in particular, to people uh, actually, on the ground, the story was very, very different. So one of the things I heard um, in Poland, that's the the major border crossing, that's uh, where the vast majority of Ukrainians head through before uh, transiting to other, other countries. Um, they've set up uh, abandoned supermarkets as refugee centres, as refugee hubs, and volunteers aren't vetted. They can really, especially in the first weeks of the crisis, can just wander in and out. And I saw that personally. I, I visited a couple. Uh, no one asked to see my ID. It was just a quick question of who are you, what are you doing? Okay, that's fine. Uh, go ahead. Um, so one of the, the Red Cross volunteers who set up that centre um, was really, uh, really forceful in trying to vet people that were offering help and partnered with a software company and managed to implement a vetting system that linked up with Europol and Interpol databases. Uh, and they found that there were at least two known convicted child sex offenders who attempted to gain entry to the centre posing as volunteers. Um, there are another seven with criminal, oh, wow. yeah, another seven with criminal backgrounds that tried to gain entry. Um, and what was really worrying for the Red Cross staff is that at the time there's only two centres now that have that vetting system in place. Um, and they said eight percent of volunteers were turned away because of because of these background checks for whatever reason. Um, so it just shows, you know, the sort of huge amounts of people heading to the border with heading to the these centres with bad intentions and how so little is being done to vet them or catch them. Why isn't more being done to vet them? Is it just a matter of the fact that, you know, this is all being just happening on the fly? Is it also a, a cost thing? Well, there are, there are a few reasons. One of the huge things is that, you know, it is really hard to catch a trafficker in the act. They're, they're quite clever. Um, a lot of the tactics they use, they, they do seem like genuine um, people offering help. Uh, and it, it is difficult to, you know, the refugees aren't arriving in organised buses. They're coming in ebbs and flows and some are walking, some are on buses, some are in cars. And, you know, it's really hard to police all the areas that the refugees are going to. So what I saw in Moldova, in um, which is a non-EU country, um, what I saw in the southern border crossing where a lot of refugees from the east and from Odessa are fleeing was private taxi drivers approaching refugees and offering lifts. And I thought that that was a little bit shady. All the private drivers, well, one had an incredibly expensive Audi, uh, and this is a really impoverished part of the country and, and of, of, of the world, really. There's 13% of Moldovans live in, in poverty. Um, and they were approaching refugees and saying, you should ride with me and I'll take you to where you want to go for a fee of 200 euros or whatever. Um, and this meant the refugees didn't 
arrive and register with the local government and registering with the local government means the government knows where their onward plans are, have their contact numbers, make sure they've got a SIM card and can keep track of people. So that was a huge concern and, and trafficking experts said that they'd heard a number of cases of people being taken to unsafe locations by private drivers. Uh, but the police, you know, there are only so many police in that area and they said they just simply couldn't police the entire border crossing as well as the refugee centres and refugee hubs all at the same time. They had to go back and forth between them. So it's a really uh, difficult thing to police. It's a really difficult thing to catch in the act and prosecute. You know, intent to traffic is not an easy thing um, to sort of try in a in a court. Um, and and then there is, of course, a lack of resources. It's a huge, it's a huge number of people coming across. What is being done to stop the human traffickers other than the vetting? Uh, so there is the vetting and that is a very, very important um, sort of step of the process, checking people's criminal histories. Again, this is only two centres in Poland doing this. Um, Romania had some quite, uh, um, quite good processes in place where refugees were immediately transported to a second location where no external people were allowed. It was only government authorities there, um, you know, sort of processing everyone. And they, they, ha- they really had to go there. They couldn't, they couldn't just leave without being checked by the authorities. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, innovation in technology. So that vetting system, uh, QR codes being placed on private drivers' cars so that refugees can track where they're going, log in uh, on this system and let people know when they've arrived safely and check the the car matches the driver. Um, and, and we are seeing steps like that. There are uh, the Polish police where underwent about two weeks ago um, anti-trafficking training. So there's hopes that they'll be conducting sting operations um, probably by now, either posing as Ukrainians online or doing online investigations to search for people soliciting uh, Ukrainians in sort of a dodgy manner to try and catch them in the act. So there are steps you know, taking place. But but speaking to all these anti-trafficking experts, the people running the training, they described it as stopping the bleed, you know, not necessarily dealing with the crisis, but just trying to slow it down, which I think is a huge concern. You know, this is two months into the refugee crisis, two months since the invasion, and these are only now taking place. Training only happened two weeks ago. Sting operations are only just starting. So we don't really know the full scale of the crisis yet um, because everything's sort of been happening on the back foot. So I'm getting from this the sense that you think and not enough is being done. What more can be done to, um, I guess, try and stop this crisis? Well, that organisation uh, that set up the vetting systems in the in the Polish refugee centres actually offered it for free to the Polish government, and it's they're still in negotiations. It's yet to be rolled out, but that could be easily rolled out. You know, the the people who developed the system said it would take an hour to set up the software in each location. So that's an immediate first step. Um, secondly, governments are uh, starting to. Uh, vet host um, families that are offering to take refugees uh, in their homes and then let them stay there. Um, but again, there are, there are flaws. The uh, the uh, UN told the UK government just last week uh, to stop matching single men with um, women and children because they thought it was inappropriate, even if the bet- vetting did pl- take place. Um, so, so we need to see just more of these checking who exactly is going where, making sure they're logged. Um, one crisis coordinator expert I spoke to who's worked in almost every uh, refugee crisis in, in recent history said that really what, what the government should be doing is repurposing quarantine hotels and making sure refugees stay there for at least a week so that 
where they intend to go is properly vetted. We actually do know rather than these, you know, rush jobs of, of people heading out to people they think they know or people that seem like it's a genuine offer only to be put in a bad situation. And, and just finally, one great thing the governments have been doing, the EU has done, is uh, Ukrainians have rights to live and work in the EU for two years, um, which is huge. That really reduces the risk of trafficking because people aren't in those desperate, vulnerable situations. They can access welfare. So if the war does continue, we'll need to see those rights extended to make sure people you know, can support themselves and don't need to accept risky offers. You're listening to Amber Schultz. She just spent a few weeks on the Ukrainian border reporting on it. She um, has published a four-part series on crikey.com.au. You can read it about the trafficking that's happening uh, at the border or, or people fear is happening. Um, before I go to Amber with one more question without notice, if anyone else would like to ask a question, you can, I think, you know, uh, say I'd like to be a speaker. And if that's the case, I can select you and you can ask something to Amber as well. Um, her time there, I mean, she saw a lot and has some incredible stuff to tell. Um, speaking of Amber, um, you spent a few weeks there. You were obviously, you know, you were on the ground seeing it kind of happening. At the same time, I have no doubt, you were also consuming a lot of media about what was happening on the ground. Do you think that the stories that we were telling about what it's like for these refugees um, fleeing Ukraine reflected what the reality was like that, that you saw? I mean, I think as with all reporting on humanitarian crises, it does focus on the, the absolute heartbreak and horror uh, that refugees go through. And obviously that's a, that's a really important thing to acknowledge, especially so early into the crisis when people are, um, you know, still reeling from the trauma that they've seen. Uh, but I think one of the things a lot of the coverage missed out was just the sort of tales of human resilience or, or love and strength and, and cooperation. You know, a lot of the, um, yeah, a lot of the, we spoke a lot about people with bad intentions. There were so many people with good intentions as well, just there trying to help. There were so many amazing initiatives to help these refugees. And there were so many refugees trying to uh, help one another. So many Ukrainians trying to organise events, make sure their families were were kept busy and occupied and contributing to their host communities, uh, which was really you know, really heartwarming to see. One thing that it probably exposes me to being a bit naive, but, you know, some of the people you're speaking to who were fleeing were just so young. And to see mm. young people going through uh, such catastrophic events, that, like, you know, their lives literally being turned upside down. What was that like for them that you heard and, and how are they responding to it? So I um, actually ended up, a, a lot of the people I spoke to were sort of young young women, you know, aged 14 to 24, who I just um, connected with a little a little bit easier. We often had the same piercings or jewellery or a joke in common, uh, and they, they often spoke English, and they were some of the most eager to tell their stories. They really wanted to be heard. They really wanted to, um, you know, the world to know what had happened to them. But at the same time, it was absolutely devastating because some of these these young girls were, you know, 14 years old and they're telling me some of the most horrific things, you know, allegations of their school teacher being kidnapped um, and, and raped and held hostage. Um, they'd been shot at as they fled. They'd lost members of their community. Um, you know, they, they, they saw people killed while they were fleeing. Just absolutely horrible, horrible scenarios that, that young people shouldn't have to deal with and shouldn't have to think about. Um, one young girl I spoke to, Maria, uh, was, 
you know, she was really impassioned about what she was speaking about. She she wanted the world to know how angry she was at Putin. Um, but at the same time, she acknowledged, she said, I, I want to have normal teenage problems. I want to be worried about, you know, um, my school exams and what boy likes me. I, I don't want to have to think about this. But at the same time, I have no choice. You know, she... A lot of the children, I think, felt a little bit robbed of, of their youth and of their adolescence from, from Putin's actions. That was Amber Schultz talking about her weeks spent reporting at the Ukraine border about the human trafficking crisis that is happening there. That is us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with normal election content. And until then, you can find all of our content at crikey.com.au.